A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Histories of the Unexpected. He's the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. And he's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell. And we are your hosts for Histories of the Unexpected. Each week we discuss a surprising object oozing with unexpected historical significance. And this week it's the letter which is all about secret codes and cipher systems. It's the dark arts of cryptography, and it's intimately linked with the history of the post. Ah, which is all about anticipation, of course, anticipating the letter, personality, and for me, it's about lying. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, and tell all of your friends. We're on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. We're proud to be part of the excellent History Hit Network, home of Dan Snow's History Hit and other great shows coming soon. And you can find out more about what we've got planned in the forthcoming months. Show notes, video clips, photos of everything we discuss and much, much more at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode eight of Histories of the Unexpected, where we will be audio googling through history, exploring the history of things that you didn't even know had a significant story to tell, like the history of the ring, the potato, even the fart. <laughs> Who knew that the history of flatulence was of such pressing interest? <laughs> uh, and we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how everything, simply everything, has a history and crucially how those histories link in unexpected ways. Who knew, Sam, that the history of the gift was all about politics and diplomacy? Or that the history of the bubble was all about the history of disappointment? about innocence and the history of childhood. Oh, you're a peddler of sadness. The man sitting opposite me is the Lieutenant of Lifetimes. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello. And the man sitting opposite me is the Investigator of Intrigue. It is <laughs> Dr Sam Willis. And together we will be piloting you on this uncharted and frankly highly dangerous flight into the past. Each week one of us will take the lead. And this week it's... Me. Okay, Sam, I have for you this week something very close to my heart. The letter. Ah, the letter. What do you think about when... Of course, you've read my four books. <laughs> I like what you've le- done there. On letters. Um, what do you think of when you think about the letter? I think I'm trapped in a, in a room with someone who's written four books of this. I'm going to leave. Um, It'll be fine. It'll be fine. I immediately think of the non-letter I think of a period before the letter, how people communicated. 
And I also think of what happened after the letter. So uh, mm. the 1850s, the telegraph mm. and how things changed. So um, for me, the letter, it's not just about the letter. It's about the whole history of communication. Um, on top of that, I um, am fascinated by the history of handwriting. Brilliant. Um, so pens, nibs, uh the way that some for some people handwriting is an art other people loathe it some writing is unintelligible even if we all get taught the same way it's one of those brilliant examples of uh humanity diversifying and insisting on on a strand of uniqueness in its life because yeah. fundamentally at schools we're all taught to write in exactly the same way but nowadays if you sit down any well anyone even kids after a certain age i wonder when that happens actually when do you get your own unique handwriting is it very early it's probably very it's probably pretty early when i look at my own children's handwriting it's pretty it's pretty idiosyncratic already yeah uh, and that that i think when when they start off writing it's pretty pretty idiosyncratic then there's a period where schools take over and they try and teach uniformity. And then probably, probably sort of just before teenage years, that sort of, I suppose, 10, 11, 12, you'll see the development of more idiosyncratic styles. When I think about my own handwriting, I remember practising my own signature and in fact try and it, my signature is very similar to my father's signature yeah. because I was looking for a sort of model or template to follow and that was all about that was all about expressing my own identity and of course this links to graphology you know people Absolutely. being able to read into and your own signature into handwriting yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all sorts of wonderful examples of people not being able to write their own name um, and then having to cope with that to be absolutely sign but to, but to still do it in a unique way um, I remember copying my dad's signature as well mm. early forgery mm. um, and we, ah. we had a um, uh, also, practicing because I was impressed with his signature, and I, yes, I liked it. Yes. Um, but we have a a dictionary that was passed down from my dad's grandfather to his son, to his son, to his son. So it's gone through five generations. I've just given it to my son, and at the beginning of the, of the page, um, I should have brought it with me. You, you turn it over, and we everyone's written their names in a very similar style. Um, but me. even though everyone has different handwriting, it's really weird. But wouldn't it be odd if you? Um, if we all had the same handwriting, imagine that now. Yeah, impossible. Yeah, impossible to think. I mean, the, one of the things is that we, that nowadays we have such unique handwriting. Whereas if we look at earlier, if we look at earlier periods where handwriting was much less sort of much less sort of diverse. Oh, that's much, interesting. Much, much more, much less widespread. What the hell's going on there then? So, well, the. Writing would have been the originally would have been the preserve of elites, particularly the church. If you think about early handwriting, there would have been different types of script, different types of hand that would have been related to different spheres, such as the the church or law courts. Mm. And it would have been, and people would have learned to write very sort of um, very sort of formal types of handwriting. And it's not until much later that we suddenly see a kind of an explosion. In my, I write like a, like somebody on you know like a sort of dyslexic spider <laughs> on a on a sort of combination of LSD and, and, and vodka. <laughs> my, my handwriting is appalling. I now type um, because my handwriting is so illegible. But enough of this chit chat about what handwriting. Yeah, take what I've it. got for you is the following delivery for you. What have you got in front of he you? He has there, just Sam? hand delivered me a. Uh, 
a you, you, can, you can open it. I'm going to open it. It is a photocopy of a letter folded in the traditional way so that there's the uh, the address is on the centre of this thing and it's all kind of folded up. I'm desperately looking for a date or something. Where is it? What's this? this stamp on it? There's a, the Hatfield House Library, so I know it's come from an archive. And um, there we are on the back of it. 1601? 1601. Right. What is this? This is the 23rd of September, 1601. So this is a early 17th century letter. It is written by Robert Cecil, Secretary of State, to the soldier, Sir Francis Darcy. Now what's interesting about this, I'm going to fold it up again, because what if you think about how we look at letters nowadays, you know, we often read them, if we're studying them as historians, we will often read them in printed editions. We will concentrate on the words and the content of them. And you can see that across history, whether you're looking at Nelson's letters or whether you're looking at really early ancient letters or, or papal letters. Um, what we have here, though, is something that, is, that I would refer to as a as I coined the term in my in my book, the material letter. So it's about the kind of the physical letter, the way in which the physical letter communicates. If you were receiving this letter, rather as you'd receive a letter nowadays in an envelope, this is a period pre-envelopes, the first thing you see is the outside mm -hmm. of it. And what we see here, as you quite rightly said... So the, the, um, the letter is itself its own envelope. The letter is, it, is, is itself own, own envelope. The letter is folded into itself. The letter is, fo is folded into itself and it is sealed. But what's interesting here is that already, before you, before you open the letter and read its contents, it is communicating to you. So we've got here, um, to my very loving friend, Sir Francis Darcy, Darcy Knight at Dover. So we know, we know who it's to, we know where it's going. We've then got some really interesting other annotations on it. For Her Majesty's Affairs, this basically means that it is a government letter. This is a period pre-post office. This is when we have uh, royal post. We have a series of postal stages you know, on, on different sort of arterial roads throughout the country. Mm. Which is how the history of the post is linked to the history of roads. Absolutely. Horses. Bridges, yeah. inns, all of that. Um, and then we have, we have here, we have Robert Cecil's signature on the outside of it. So he has basically authenticated this letter and said that it can go by royal mail. And then if you have a look here, there are a series of other little endorsements. And what we can do with that is we can actually track this letter's journey. Wow. And this letter went from London at the court, and then we can follow it down the, down the Dover Road through Kent until it reaches Dover Castle. Right. Where, it, where it's picked up by the, 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 the Lord Lieutenant of Dover, of Dover, the Lieutenant of Dover Castle, one Sir Thomas Fane. What's interesting here is we see it coming from, from London at the court, so it goes to the post at the court at eight in the morning. It's then endorsed, um, it's then endorsed again uh, at London um, after eight in the morning, which basically means that it's gone from the court post to the post of London. And then if we flip it over. This is like registered post, isn't it's it? Like, it's every time it's like arrives, registered it's, they're post. signing it. Yeah. So every, every time it reaches a postal node or an inn where they change over horses, the postmaster basically signs the place and the time. Receipt, so we, we yeah. can run through all of these places here, 
you know, Dartford at 11 in the forenoon, Rochester at 2 in the afternoon, Sittingbourne at 7 in the evening, Canterbury past 9 in the night. So we know exactly its journey. Mm. I mean, interestingly, it, the letter turns up and Darcy isn't there. <laughs> so, what, so what they do, they send it out into the, in, into the sort of... Um, into the sort of the local terrain. The letter comes back to Dover Castle, unopened, and then is sent all the way back to Cecil at court. And we know this, the letter was actually unopened. We know this because of, um, because of the letter from the lieutenant of the castle who encloses this letter in it. Mm. And so we can follow its journey all the way back. But it's basically, it basically takes 13 hours to go from London to Dover, and it is an unopened letter. That's interesting. It still takes thirteen hours, but I mean, so uh, uh, what we've essentially got here is the the letter as an historical object in its own right. It's what, it's what the letter itself can tell you, rather than what the contents of the Absolutely. letter tells you about. Yeah. Absolutely, and there are other interesting features here. Have a look at that. What do you think that is? I don't know, I was looking at it, it looks like a gallows. It is absolutely a gallows. You look at what, what's above it. So this is this says, is on the, the front of the letter. There's a little little picture, and it's um it's a a, a a vertical post, a horizontal bar, and another vertical post with something, possibly an unfortunate person. Yeah, like a little noose. And above it is written the words, post haste, haste for life, life, life. And this is fascinating. Oh, right. Because basically what this means is, this is urgent. Someone's going to you know, yeah, yeah. take this. A and matter of life and death. A matter of life and death. And what you have here is the, is the visual cue of the gallows showing the person who's carrying this, who we cannot assume is able to read uh, and yeah. doesn't know what they're carrying, at least they know how important it is. It also signals to the person at the other end, you know, who is probably a busy government official who has a mountain of letters to look through, that basically this is something you need to read. Yeah. Okay. Urgent. So very, very on urgent. On Her Majesty's service, we've, yeah. got, we've got that, and then we've got, we've got a very, very urgent... And we, you, you haven't got have you got coloured ink in this period? You, There's nothing you can't... There, there is there is coloured ink, but but people and people use that for decorative presentation manuscripts. But this is this is all in this is all in sort of brown or black ink. What's interesting here is flip it over, and what we've got here is the remnants, or certainly the photocopied remnants of a of a wax seal. Yeah. And the wax seal would have been to close the letter, would have been to ensure. Privacy. That's so a dark blob of wax. So that, a, a I think importantly, that's red. Yeah, that's not that's, that's red. White. No, that's red. Which brings us to the important question of the history of coloured wax. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which is fascinating. Different. Different. The 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 colour of wax had different meaning um, during times of mourning. When somebody had well, died. How, you how use, do they make white? Black. Was it you natural wax? Was white? It came out white. Tallow. Sort of un. Then they had to make it become red or black. Yes, yes. You, add, you add you add pigment to it, yeah. and that and that makes it and that turns the colour of it. But black wax you would add by using you know using adding sort of charcoal or something mm -hmm. like that. That would be used for times of mourning, so that has a significance. If you think about the the seal itself, the wax itself, in order to seal it, you would use a a, a, a signet ring or a desk desk um, top um, signet that would press. An, an image or an emblem into it, mm. um, so that would often be, you know, a a a a 
an image of a badge of office or a family seal that would authenticate that would authenticate this. If we if we rip it if we open it like this, what you can see is we're we're opening it into a an oblong. We're opening it out like that, and what we have is actually a pretty straightforward three-line communique, and it reads: Sir Francis Darcy, I have received this enclosed from the court this morning which I have thought good to send to you with speed to be delivered by you according as you are directed. And so for this time, I commit you to God from London, this 23rd of September, 1601, your very loving friend, Robert Cecil. So it is a really unimportant letter, really. Oh, that's it? You know, that's it. Oh, that's literally it. Those, <laughs> I thought those, there was going to be some kind of like... Those three lines. No, and, that, and that's the significance of it, that, that basically it's a very unimportant letter, but it communicates to us in all these different ways. We know, if we flip it over here, there's another part here. This is, this is the endorsement by Cecil's secretary. And it says here, to Sir Francis Darcy, so that, so that a secretary would then, archiving this, would be able to know exactly what it was about with a French book. So the French book would have would have travelled as an enclosure, mm. so something that went that went along with it. So you think about how this this sort of intricate manuscript letter communicates to us in a whole range of ways and opens up a whole range of histories. Yeah, which you weren't expecting. Yeah, I mean, I I think um, for me, one of the interesting things we mentioned there was this this question of the post and horses, yeah. and actually what it tells you about the infrastructure of the time. Um, so, say a letter is in Plymouth or Falmouth and it has to get to London, it, you've got to cross Bodmin Moor, you've got to cross Dartmoor, yeah. you've then got to go across Salisbury Plain, yeah. so lots of inhospitable places, um, and bridges is an interesting thing. So bridges and roads are only constructed with a significant amount of labour. Yeah, yeah. And... The best way of getting labour in the 17th and 18th century is to use slave labour. And the most readily available pool of slave labour are prisoners. <laughs> so Dartmoor's brilliant. Um, if you go up onto Dartmoor and everyone kind of celebrates the wildness of the landscape, it's not. It's completely manufactured by French prisoners of war. <laughs> there are some wonderful things. Um, so they were all held up on D Dartmoor Jail. And they were used to essentially um, control the wildness of the Dartmoor landscape. So they built roads and they built bridges. Remember those, do you know those lovely kind of slab bridges yes, they have? Yes. So they're all built by French prisoners of war. So what you're looking at and you think is wild isn't at all. It's entirely manufactured. And that is, is a experience here down in Devon is, is mimicked elsewhere. But it, does, it comes up to this thing that I'm really interested in. And that is the time it takes for letters of significant public moment to get somewhere. Yeah. Or personal personal moment. But but I, I've been mainly interested in um, official letters and official correspondence. Yeah. So how long, what did you say that was? The, the one that's, we just a, that's about 13 hours, but you're travelling through official routes. Other times will be so much longer than that, particularly if you're coming down to the West Country. Yeah, yeah. If you're and, and as soon as you get into as soon as you get into Cornwall, you know, you're adding so much more time yeah. on it. There are two things about it. One is that there are very few roads around. There's some yeah. great Roman roads, but the point is is that the path of that letter is predictable. Yes. So it means it's easy to stop 
Yeah. If you're going by land. C is much quicker. Yeah. And it's less predictable and, and safer, essentially. Yeah. So yeah. that's why the post service was so important with the C. But then if you rate, think about this question, we've just been talking about communicating um, within within the British Isles. But what happens then when you've got massive problems to do with empire on the other side of the world? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and this is where it gets great. So say you're, there's something going on in the Caribbean, right? There was an awful lot going on in the Caribbean, usually fighting. Usually it was horrific and there was all sorts of death and nastiness. But economies rose and fell on the fortunes of the Caribbean. It was so fundamentally important, particularly to the British Empire, um, because of all the money that came through from islands, sugar islands like Jamaica. Right. So how long does it take to get a letter back from Jamaica to London? Weeks. 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 Okay, so the best case scenario, three. Yeah. Maybe two and a half if you yeah. are seriously lucky. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the fastest boats at the time on a good wind, they'd do seven miles an hour. And you're dependent on You're 3,000 miles away. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so three weeks, right. What that means is that there's a kind of an interesting parallel between what we do for a living and yeah. the politicians who were trying to deal with wars and the economy. The point being is that they are dealing with a letter bearing significant news, but they have to treat that letter as a historian because it's not describing something that's happening now. It's mm -hmm. not an email that's come across from Washington saying something's happened. It happened three weeks ago, at least. It might have happened five weeks ago, six weeks ago. So they have to be able to Think about what might have happened in the, um, you know, in that time frame, and then bear in mind that it's going to be another four or five weeks before they can get a message back. Yeah. By which time the whole situation will have changed all over again. Completely. And so for me, once you you understand that, you realise that this whole idea of people trying to control empire and 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 certainly kind of control the direction of wars is absolute nonsense it's not like there's someone there pulling strings that suddenly moves something in you know the southern american colonies or in the caribbean or in south america um it's much more unpredictable and vague than that and it puts an immense amount of power in the actors on on the ground in as it as history unfolds ra rather than the the big cheeses yeah. Back in London, which is where who we think, or Paris, wherever it is, who we think traditionally exercises the power. They have no power. Yeah. So in a sense, what we've got then is, is that at the heart of the history of war, the history of diplomacy, the history of politics, is really the way in which we think about the letter mm -hmm. and the process of letter writing, the time that it takes, what, what theoretical historians might call the a model of epistolarity, right. uh, which is a very confusing term. It basically means the letterness of letters. Yeah, but okay. basically, if you think about how we think about letters today, you know, the wonderful Royal Mail will do next day delivery. It's, it's, it's immediate. So you're quite right. We need to get into this completely different mindset about communication that is much more irregular, much more haphazard. And as soon as you start applying that to a whole range of phenomena, whether it be the power of the state or the power of armies, or even the ability of individuals to conduct their own affairs, to engage in relationships with each other, you know, it has phenomenal sort of, you know, phenomenal impact. I mean, one way, to, I was 
find helpful to think about this um, is imagine there's a, there's a battle, right? A naval yeah. battle yeah. in the middle of the Atlantic. Um, two huge fleets fight each other. And the fleets represent significant investments from a government at the time. They're at war. Economies are doing it. Lives are at stake, you know. Um, but the clash is so big that no one survives. All the ships sink and there are no witnesses and there are no descriptions of the letters. But still, there's been a massive clash between two empires. So the question is, does that battle have the same effect on history without any witnesses describing what happened? And the answer is, yes or no, I can't, I'm sorry, I confused myself there, but basically what happens is that the, the letter that describes the event becomes more important than the event itself. Yeah, yeah. So it is essential that it is witnessed and that it is described, but that fills up those letters with an immense amount of power which shapes the way we think about history in the yeah, past and yeah. which then it's the letter it's not the event that that will then change the way we perceive history it will change the way that others perceive that event at the time which will then affect politics economics social lives whatever it is yeah and in a sense you know we can only write a history of the past for which we have evidence of mm-hmm. so if that goes if that if that battle that particular ship being destroyed goes completely unrecorded then it has no history in a sense because the raw materials of history aren't there. And what we've been talking... Well, true, but you still got... Detritus will still wash yes, ashore. Yes. Suns won't come home. It's still going to have an effect. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. But, it, but, it, yeah. but it, yeah. it will be a very different yeah. effect. And and the way that we perceive and write about that effect will be different because we now, 300 years later, don't know about it because we've got no because we evidence to no work. So, so if it becomes... It's immediate for them at the time in the past, but, yes. but it, it suddenly becomes more difficult for us to write about. Yeah. I mean, what we've been talking, what I think we've been, we've been mapping the letter onto these very big sort of thematic narratives. What I'd like to sort of think about now is the way in which we, we run the letter in a more personal way. You know, and you think about, you know, we've been talking about it in terms of, in terms of state, in terms of communication, in terms of war. But what about the letter as a, as a way of looking at personal relationships? You know, letters between children and parents, letters between husbands and wives, and how that shifts over time. You know, how that, that kind of, those sort of protocols of, of letter writing mm. are important. And, and letters of protest as well. Letters of protest. You know, if, certainly in the past, I've read lots of these actually, if someone's got a gripe about something, the way to cement it and to make it official, to, to try and improve your chances of it being addressed, is to write it down. Yeah, a letter of, yeah, a letter of petition. The peti- we see petitions all the time today. This has a very, this has a very, very long history. But also the, I mean, it's interesting that you talk about that, the, the sort of almost the poisoned pen letter, mm. the history of the poisoned pen letter, the letter vituperative. You know, this is, a, this is a classical sort of rhetorical mode of writing. And I've got here one of my favourite letters to share with you. I read this when I was many, many years ago, when I was an undergraduate at Oxford, and I was sitting in the upper reading room of the, uh, of the Bodleian Library. And I, this is one of, those, one of those moments when I'd been reading, reading, reading through 16th and 17th century letters, which weren't really saying very, very much to me. And I came across this, and it is a letter from a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law. It's a, a letter from Maria Thin. Okay, the backstory to this, she is a maid of honour at court. 
Um, she is from a, a, an aristocratic family. She marries, without the mother-in-law's knowledge, a man called Thomas Thin. Okay, and the, I won't go into the details of this, but needless to say, the mother and mother-in-law and daughter-in-law do not get on. <laughs> and before this letter is written, there are a series of maybe half a dozen letters that she writes trying to get back on in good terms with her, trying to get back on, on her good side. And then the father-in-law dies. And that, this is the family that's based at Longleat House. So the mother-in-law moves out to the dower house. Thomas Thin, the son, and his wife, Maria Thin, move into the property and there is a complete role reversal. There is, there is a big power shift, and I think it expresses it really well. The mother-in-law has obviously been complaining uh, to, to her daughter-in-law about the, this sort of changed situation, and Maria writes to her like this. But the case being, as it is, methinks you should not unkindly intermeddle more than Mr. Thin, in other words, her husband, doth with all your lands of inheritance. I confess, without shame. It is true, my garden is too ruinous, and yet to make you more merrier, you shall be of my counsel, that my intent is, before it be better, to make it worse. For finding that great expense can never alter it from being like a porridge pot, nor never by report was like other. I intend to plough it up, and sow all variety of fruit at a fit season. I beseech you laugh, and so will I at your captiousness. Now, whereas you write your ground put to basest uses is better manured than my garden, surely if it were a grandmother of my own and equal to myself by birth, in other words, she's basically saying, I'm more high-born than you, I should answer that odious comparison with telling you, I believe so corpulent a lady cannot but do much yourself towards the soiling of land. And I think that hath been and will be all the good you intend to leave behind you at Causley. In other words, she's basically saying to her mother-in-law that you manure your own land. <laughs> and I particularly like the pun there that this is all the good that you will leave behind you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. You know, this stuff, is a, she's one of the cleverest, sort of wittiest, you know, Elizabethan letter writers that I that I've ever come across. This is, you know, this is pointed. You know, angry, spiteful, getting at her mother. And but there's so much humanity of it as well, isn't it? And it, and, it, and it's it, it's one of those wonderful, wonderful letters that really smacks you over the head that these were people with real lives, real personalities that we can see parallels. Yes, in, and, you know, and, and real and real feelings. Yeah, and being able to being able to read a letter and being able to excavate that kind of emotional state. Um, you know the letter as a as a tech if we can view it in a sort of in a sort of fancy Foucauldian way as a technology of the self in other words what we have is the letter itself becomes a way of examining yourself in an introspective way I think what we if we look at the history of the letter so we can look at the history of humanity and the his the emergence of I don't know self-awareness the 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 individual feelings. What's brilliant about that is a startlingly rude letter. Yes, okay. so, it's very so, rude. So what we haven't talked about is the impact yes. of letters. Yes. Um, and so you've got the whole anticipation of receiving letters, yeah. anticipation of the post, but also, I mean, there, there's no kind of greater challenge to 
rational thought and behaviour than sudden and very powerful news. Yeah. Whoever you are, yes, and you know it stops you sleeping. You know it gives you palpitations. You can there's a there's a physical reaction that one can have from receiving a letter. And, and just imagine how cross that that lady was to receive that. Pretty... And it survives. Yeah, that's the thing. It's well, kept. Well, I'm not surprised. Someone must have gone. This is an absolute gem. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there we go. Yeah. What about the one thing that I wanted to talk about very briefly is what about the letter today? You know, we, you, you flagged at the beginning that we're in an age almost where letter writing is becoming defunct. You know, we are constantly emailing, we're texting, we're Skyping, we're tweeting, we're Facebooking. We're emojiing. We're, emo- we're, an we're emojiing. Letter in a, in a... When, do you write a, when do you write a letter nowadays? Yeah. And what kinds of letters do you, do you write? Well, the, the, the equivalent emoji of that letter is a little pile of poo. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> She'd have just sent that. <laughs> And so much more easily. But, <laughs> but nothing like as eloquent. No, no. But there's something about the abruptness that I like. But you think about the, what the letters that you would probably write. We, we probably still write formal business letters. We probably still write love letters. The well, love letter is still... We do, we do. And there are some industries, lawyers still operate a lot, um, don't they? Um, one of, in, through the letter. Through the letter. They, yeah. you know, there's a lot of writing documents, faxing them. You know, so actually the, 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 the physical document's very important. Yeah, uh, certainly for law, um, but it certainly is different. Different now, isn't it? It is indeed. So, have we run out of steam on the letter? I, I feel like I've slightly puffed out, but steam's a very good point because it all changes in the nineteenth century with the telegraph. Tell me about the telegraph. Well, you've got um, from the eighteen fifties. Um, you suddenly have countries which are linked by cable with each other, and so letter writing becomes, you know, uh, immediately yeah. different and of a slightly older generation. So by 1855, there are, there are cables linking Sweden, Denmark and Germany, and there's one that goes across the Atlantic as early as 1858. So immediate. Yeah. Um, so that's immediate, and it crisscrossed 3,000 miles of the Atlantic, and yeah. it's, it's laid by a steamship. Um, and you think about the uses of this communication. Oh, steaming open oh, letters. Steaming open. Oh, <laughs> oh, my word! There, we could do a whole, we could do a whole podcast on breaking open letters and seals, and doing it secretly. Well, let's, let's just secretly. let's save that for another day. Otherwise, it's a, it's a that's a nest of vipers, which is which is the same as a letter full of nasty words. Um, Thank you all for listening. That was great, that one. Love that. Um, as always, you are the most important member of this podcast. Do please get in touch with us on email, Facebook, Twitter, any way you want. Let us know your anecdotes of letters through history and do, of course, suggest topics that we can cover in our future podcast. But for now, that's the end of it. That was Letters. Thank you. Bye. Bye.